There goes the future of our church, right? And praise the Lord for that. That's why it's so important to continue teaching young ones and evangelizing young ones. Now, I hope you realize one of the biggest outreaches we have in the calendar year is our vacation Bible school ministry. We have opportunity there to reach homes and young people that we oftentimes don't uh, have opportunity to at other times of the year. So I really want to encourage you to do whatever you can personally. I mean, this is an all-hands-on-deck kind of uh, outreach. And so if you're able to do anything, okay, please uh, let your... Let your uh, abilities and interests be made known. The meeting, as was already mentioned, will follow the morning service over here. We're calling this the East Annex. This is the East Side, and it's Annex Two, our, our, the present auditorium. It is useful as part of the auditorium when need when needed. So we're not just calling it a classroom, but we're it, it is part of our auditorium as well. So that's what that name means for that. You say, well, we need a better name. You're probably right. I just can't think of one. So we welcome suggestions if you have something else to call it. But uh, please help us out with the VBS efforts. Acts chapter 14, if you have your Bibles with you, trust you do, and you're thankful for God's word, say amen if you are. And feel free to say amen without my prompt if the Lord is encouraging you. That's uh, something that Christian people can say. You say, well, pastor, sometimes I hear you say amen, sometimes it's amen, which is it? It's whatever you want to say. Um, probably, technically, amen is the, is the preferred pronunciation. It goes way back to the Old Testament. But I hardly ever hear a Baptist say it, amen. So you kind of feel like you probably need to be Presbyterian or, uh, to say amen. Uh, and we're Baptists, so hey, amen will work just fine. Amen? <laughs> amen? I don't know if I. Okay, well, you see, you, you're 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 awkward with that. I, I get that. So, whichever will be fine. Acts chapter 14. We continue in our series through the book of Acts. I hope you're finding it exciting week by week. It really is uh, to see what uh, missionaries are experiencing in their first go around the world. This is part of Paul's first missionary journey. He is uh, going out with Barnabas on this particular series of meetings in, in towns that probably they had never been to before. It's really awkward when you go to a new place, isn't it? You're trying to figure out the lay of the land, especially if they have a little bit different culture, especially if there are different ways and you don't know where people congregate and all those things. Just imagine what it's like for them going to this brand new place and experiencing all these things that a first-time tourist would experience. And they're there to preach the gospel. And they're going forth in, in obedience to the Great Commission. And what they will find in our passage, as we'll see today, is a very exciting beginning. Because it looks almost like another Pentecost happening the way people are receiving the word. So let's read our text for today, Acts 14, verses 1 through 7. Hopefully everyone has your Bible open and ready to go. Let's stand as we read God's word together. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. The word of God says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way 
that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Shall we pray? Father, Lord, help us to understand and apply these words to our spiritual benefit today. Give me grace to preach your word with accuracy, with boldness, with love. And Lord, may these things apply to our congregation to be of spiritual help to us as we try to carry out our mission that you've given us here in our Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And so, Lord, meet with us today. Help us. Spirit of God, be our, our leader and our true Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you'd have your way now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may have known the Lord a little bit longer and are serious about your Bible study, may have come across a work that is cited often when it comes to understanding the Roman world and the travels of the Apostle Paul. I am referring to a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey, that's R-A-M-S-A-Y, and one of the works that is, has gained quite a reputation is called St. Paul the Traveler. The background of the work might interest you in that uh, Ramsey was commissioned as a young man who was about a week from graduating Oxford, I believe it was, to go and travel the world a bit. And because of his keen mind, he was actually hired by the Encyclopedia Britannica to go through some of these places that the Bible makes reference to and uh, see what the current conditions of them were like to draw maps as needed, and it was Ramsey's finding that, th- that all the maps that existed in his day, and this would be the late 19th century, he, he described as being wholly unsatisfactory, that they were lousy, they were not accurate. And so he put his hand to some uh, efforts at cartography, some reconstruction, and his works are very well recognized for their scholarship and accuracy, and it is actually a situation that occurred by his study of this particular passage that he described as being a spiritual turning point in his life. You say, what was that? Well, it's the little detail you have in verses 4 and 5 and 6. Let's go verses 5 and 6, rather, where you see Paul and Barnabas having to leave Iconium, and it says they went to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia. There was a famous German uh, Bible critic, in fact, a a liberal, who had taken the position that uh, this was not accurate. And one interesting thing is that he put uh, the city of Iconium in the region of Lycaonia, 
because that is where most of the literature and the archaeology had it. But Ramsey, upon a very careful inspection, found that there was a period of about 150 years where the city of Iconium was actually in Phrygia. It had Phrygian roots. And it was actually during this time. In other words, Luke, as a historian, is amazingly accurate to have it right, as in this passage. And it's something that those who actually were not as careful as they should have been took as a position of finding fault with the Bible. But Ramsey said, no, that is what the archaeology shows. That is what the literature shows. Luke has it right. And for him, as a very careful scholar, it was a turning point in his life. He came to the conclusion, the Bible has it right. You can trust what's there. And I think that's a good place for us to start as we begin our our study of this chapter this morning. I want to remind you once again that what is here as a history in the book of Acts, it is here for our edification. It is here for righteousness. It is here for us to be furnished up thoroughly in the ways of the Lord. But it's also right. Okay? It's not just something that's been put together to make a good sounding story for a spiritual point. But it's right. It's truth. Amen? So with that... Let's go on in the Bible that we can trust to see some principles that these missionaries followed that we ought to follow as well if we'd like to have a bold and blessed ministry for the Lord. Do you ever feel like you sometimes just don't have enough boldness? (laughs) That you're too quiet at times and you just, things are happening around you and you'd like to speak out, you'd like to speak for the Lord, You, you wonder though, Am I going to do more harm than good? Am I going to create waves? Am I going to make life really unpleasant on myself and maybe people around me that I love if I do that? Should I be bold? Should I be forthright? And I'd like to show you from our passage today that it is good and scriptural to be bold, allowing the Holy Spirit to use us. Boldness does not mean in your face and offensive, but boldness means to be serious and frank about truth. And we need to do that. Sometimes we can be very quiet, have very low voices, and be serious and frank and bold. Isn't that true? You don't need to be loud and intentionally confrontational. Always as Christians, if we're being bold, we should always be loving, right? And we should always seek to be helpful. That doesn't mean it's always going to be received that way. But I want to encourage you with the example that we have in our passage today to be bold and let the Lord use that in your ministry for him. Now what I notice as a first emerging principle of our text today is that we ought to expect the power of the word of God. We come to verse 1 and note as Paul and Barnabas walk into Iconium, this was about the end of a hundred mile trip after they'd left Antioch of Pisidia. They are up in a little bit higher elevation here. This is fertile ground, fertile territory here around them. Lots of things could be seen growing in the area. But it is a little bit smaller town. It's smaller than Antioch of Pisidia, a medium-sized city perhaps. It might not even have warranted being called a city per se. 
we might have looked at it and say, no, that's more of a town. I'd like to remind you that the Lord is interested in towns as well as large cities. That's a good thing for us to remind ourselves of in Atchison, Kansas, population 11,000. No, it's probably true. We're not going to end up on the who's who of the 50th most influential cities in the United States. But you know what? That doesn't mean the Lord doesn't care about the people of Atchison, Kansas. He cares about the gospel going to everybody here. He cares about people experiencing the transforming power of Jesus Christ and knowing what it is to have victory over sin in their lives and knowing what it is to have the joy of the Lord and righteousness and relationships put right. And the Lord knows that our town is desperately in need of those things. Amen? You see it all around you, don't you? And so the Lord is interested in even the smaller towns as well. The text goes on to say that it is now at Iconium they entered together, that is Paul and Barnabas, went on in at the same time with one another into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now that arrested my attention. I've seen it several times before. In various translations I've read, you may have it in the Bible you're looking at, they so spake, or they spoke in such a way. And the word so is the translation of a Greek word, hutos, which means thus or in this particular way. By the way, it's the same word in John 3.16, where you have it translated so again. For God, what's the next word? So loved the world. Hutos means he loved it in this way. Okay, it's not that he loved it so greatly. That's how we usually think of it. But no, the word means he loved it in this particular way. How does he love the world? He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Wow. Love that compels somebody to give their only begotten son as the sin offering to die a death that others should die to be the savior and the substitute that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, that's what that word means. And so we find the word here in Acts 14 and 1, they entered into the Jewish synagogue and so spoke, or they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, there are a great number of preachers here in the congregation today, but I'm one, and I got to tell you, as a preacher, I look and see that description and I think, whatever so means, I want to know what that is, Right? Because if that means a great number of people believed as a result, I need to start preaching like that. You say, well, what does it mean? I think as you look through the example of apostolic preaching, not just by Paul, but look at Peter and look at Stephen in the earlier parts of the book of Acts, you realize it means in the same way that they spoke. What does that mean? Well, they spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit. Probably if you were to limit that explanation to one thing, it would be that. These men were not preaching themselves, but they were preaching Jesus Christ. They were not preaching in the energy of the flesh. They were preaching in the energy of the Holy Spirit of God. They were preaching by prayer. You know, it's still the motto of the, what, what used to be the China Inland Mission. It has a new name now. But the thing that start, was started by Hudson Taylor as he went into a strange land with strange customs. He, an Englishman, going to China. 
He had to just totally depend on the Lord. And he said, this will be the motto of all who come and minister here. It's by prayer. And friends, it should not change even if we're in a land that we're familiar with. Because the work of the gospel is so critically that of the Holy Spirit of God, we must bathe our work in prayer. Amen? I would encourage you to pray for every church service that you go to. Pray for those who preach and teach the word of God. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for the ministry of things like VBS and Frontline and our task force. Pray for the people who work in them. We are desperately in need of your prayers. And that's one reason why we'll never cancel the Wednesday prayer meeting. I don't care if it's two people who meet. I don't care if I'm the last one who meets. Prayer is so critical to the continuation of God's work. We absolutely must pray. And if you can't make it here, please pray wherever you are. By prayer is how they so spoke that a great multitude believed. They proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed in the audience of Jesus Christ, as the Lord had said, you shall be witnesses unto me. Remember that when we're ministering the gospel, it's not just the lost person that we're speaking to, but we are in an audience with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is listening. He is watching to see what we will say about him. You shall be witnesses unto me, he said, in all of these places. And finally, I noticed that they proclaimed with boldness. They prayed for that rather than removal of the challenges or obstacles. They knew that those were going to be there. But they prayed that the Lord would give them the boldness that they needed to overcome the obstacles and the challenges. I have uh, had a privilege uh, on a couple of different seasons of my life to have ministry in correctional facilities, including when I first came to Atchison, and we still had one here in this town. Many of you remember that there were young people, uh, young men, who were incarcerated up there, sometimes as many as 50 or more, I guess. And I can remember on many, many a Sunday, this was the time I usually was able to secure with them. I would go up while the Sunday school hour was happening here at our church and go and have uh, a time of, um, of meeting with those young men. And sometimes we would have around a table as many as 15 or more. And when uh, they were asking me about the prospectus of what it was that I wanted to accomplish in speaking with those young men, I let it be known that I wanted them to see the power of God's word to change lives. And I can tell you week after week, and Jerry went with me, he was an employee of that place at that time. Uh, We had others as well, but Many a Sunday, Jerry was with me. They, these guys would come in, and it was like, oh, yeah, it's another. It's, he's, a, he's a minister. It's, a, it's some sort of a Bible time. But when they found that the focus was on the word of God, and it was my goal to simply declare to them, to teach them what God said in his word, something happened almost every session we had. Whereas they were nonchalant, disinterested, suddenly the electrifying power of God's word got a hold of them. And you can tell it when people get locked in, right? They're not looking at anything else. They are totally focused on what's being said. 
And what? Some middle-aged guy who was speaking to them about, about topics that ostensibly they thought they had no interest in at all up to this point? No, it was a God thing. And friends, I want to tell you, you don't have to stand behind a pulpit to see God use you. You can sit across a table from somebody or on a bench with somebody, or you can just have a walk or a talk with somebody or somebody you may be working with and just ministering the truth of God's word to them. You can see what is described here in verse 1 as so speaking. It can happen for you too. Now here's an exciting thing. When you're so speaking, you're speaking the word of God in this way, in the power of the Holy Spirit, by prayer, proclaiming the word of God with boldness. Here's what's really awesome. Sometimes the results are large. (laughs) The last part of the verse says, they so spake that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. Sometimes people get saved in large numbers when this happens. You say, could that really happen with me? Yes, it can. It really can. Let your light shine. Let your testimony be heard. You just never know what the Lord's going to do. I would like to lift your expectation to be, rather this morning, that that is something that may well happen, not just possibly could, some miraculous thing, that is the power of the word of God being given by a spirit-filled Christian. Amen? That's what happens here in Iconium. They are in the synagogue. This is the typical pattern. They are there, but they are not preaching to Jews only. Notice that it is Greeks also who are there. Now, notice that Luke says Greeks, not Gentiles, and that would be because There was a very strong Greek flavor to this place ever since Alexander the Great had come in and conquered this city and established Greek culture in it. This would be about 300 BC. And so even on to this time, this would be in the early, the first century uh, AD, there was still strong Greek culture such that Luke says Greeks. A second thing I'd like you to notice after expecting the power of the word is that we ought to anticipate the poison of unbelief. I see in the second verse, it says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, Satan always reacts when the word of God is preached and people's lives are being changed. Please don't think that he is now going to leave all the Christians alone And it's going to become just peace and harmony. Now he's going to do everything he can to stop the progress of the gospel, to stop the mouths of those who are preaching, and then turn Christians against each other. Now in this case, it is both, uh, it is the unbelieving Jews. I think we ought to understand that as leaders, probably among them, who are doing this. And the word here is apethos, which would literally mean unpersuaded. Some translations also render it disobedient. And really, they're not different things, if you stop and think about it. Do you realize that not to believe the gospel is to disobey the gospel? Do you realize that when Jesus Christ offers eternal life to somebody, he is also the Lord of the universe who is giving a command to be obeyed? That's why I say, and we ought to remind people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not okay. 
for them to reject Jesus Christ. They're not going to be fine. They're not going to be fine in the same way we're not fine for flouting and disobeying the laws of our land or of our community. It's not okay, and we're going to suffer consequences. Now, they are apathos. They are unbelieving. They are disobedient to the gospel that they've heard preached. Remember, the Apostle Paul had given a warning as he preaches in the synagogue at Antioch and said, Behold, you despisers, and watch out. Because the Lord is doing a work in your days, you are not going to be in good, a good case if you, if you reject it. I believe he probably did that as well when he preached in the synagogue at Iconium. And here were people who clearly were on the wrong side of this warning. They were the ones for whom the warning was intended. And now they are stirring up others in their controversy against the gospel. In fact, the phrase that's used, I think, is pretty attention-getting. It's poisoned their minds, is the way I have it rendered in my translation, against the brothers. A couple of things to note. Notice that the, 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 it is not a principled disagreement. In other words, it's not, they disagreed with the proposition, but they are actually trying to stir up the opposition against the people personally, the brothers being Paul and Barnabas. Do you realize that's one of Satan's attacks? He is trying to get you to actually be against other Christians. He is trying to poison your mind against spiritual leaders to where you're thinking the worst possible things. You know, I cannot think of a single case in 15 years of ministry here at Carroll Baptist Church where I have intentionally tried to injure or hurt somebody. And I'm saying that very sincerely. And that's not to say I haven't had some issues with individuals. But it seems like as we get together and work through them, 98% of them are misunderstandings. And why do we have these kinds of misunderstandings that drive people apart? I think you see it, don't you? It's what the devil does. He tries to poison our minds against one another. And that's exactly what these individuals, these lost people who had rejected the gospel, were intentionally trying to do. Now there is some, there is a, a, a piece of literature that is apocryphal. It dates to about 180 AD called, I'm going to give you the name of it if you care to look at it. It's not scripture. But it's called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, T-H-E-C-L-A. You say, I've never heard of anybody called Thecla before. Well, if you're in the right part of the world, there's actually, she, this, this woman, historically, and there's likely a, uh, an actual historical person, uh, named Thecla, was a, was a resident of Iconium. And the, uh, the, the text would indicate that she, was, she had come to Christ through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. But from that point, it goes in all sorts of wrong directions, okay? That's why this is an apocryphal book, not a biblical book. But in that book, it has a couple of things I think are worth noting. One is, uh, they suggest that one of the ways that they poisoned the minds was by uh, suggesting that the apostles had interfered with family life. You say, well, what might that mean? You know what happens when the gospel gets preached and some people believe in a family and others don't believe in a family? Sometimes it brings some very sharp divisions between them. Isn't that true? And then it can be the accusation by those who don't believe 
that these people are, are splitting families apart. Well, I just want to remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ made a statement very similar to that when he said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? What do swords do? Swords divide. And he went on to explain further. He said, I'm come to set, and I'll just summarize, families against one another. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. You say, why? Because the Lord likes to see divided families? No, because the gospel tends to have that effect. You say, I thought the gospel was a wonderful thing. People get saved, they go to heaven, yes, but not all believe the gospel. And then it can bring sharp division between those who believe and those who don't. It's worth it, friends, if you take the Lord and you lose your family. That's a hard thing to say, but it's worth it, right? We have some songs that are like this, take the world, but give me Jesus. Is that your statement? Are you willing, if that's the case, that though none go with me, still I will follow? We've sung that song too. Is it true? Are you willing? Because the Lord Jesus said, that's what's going to happen when you preach Christ. It was happening in Iconium. And there's another interesting picture from this work that I've referred to. I find it interesting because it has one of the few descriptions of the Apostle Paul. Is it accurate? It's not inspired. It might be accurate. They say that Paul was, well, he was bald, bow-legged, strongly built, small in stature, with large eyes and meeting eyebrows. I guess he had a unibrow, okay? And a longish nose, full of grace, sometimes looking, looking like a man, sometimes having the face of an angel. I suppose there were times when he was preaching that he might have looked like that. I'm not sure if I look like that now that I'm preaching. Some of you would say, that would be a welcome change, Pastor. That, that could happen any time. I would say, you're right. But did Paul look just like this? I don't know. But it, I, I, I heard that description. I thought, that kind of sounds like, a, I don't know, a dwarf or something. <laughs> but uh, you can do with that what you will. Certainly, though, as he is preaching The Lord is bringing great change to some, and Satan is stirring up others who are not listening to the gospel. What are they doing by attacking Paul and Barnabas here? Well, they're just making excuses against the gospel and against the truth. You ever hear that song, Excuses? I was just looking up the the lyrics of it, and I thought, boy, isn't that true. It sure happens a lot. Excuses, excuses, you'll hear them every day. The devil, he'll supply them if from the church you stay away. When people come to know the Lord, the devil always loses. So to keep them folks away from church, he offers them what? Excuses. And what are they? Well, in the summer it's too hot, in the winter it's too cold. In the springtime when the weather's right, you find someplace else to go. Well, it's up to the mountains or down to the beach or to visit some old friend. Or to just stay home and kind of relax and hope that some of the kinfolks start dropping in. Well, the church benches are too hard, and that choir sings way too loud. Boy, you know how nervous you get when you're sitting in a great big crowd. Now, the doctor told you, you better watch them crowds, they'll set you back. 
but you go to the old ball game because you say it helps you to relax. Well, a sun headache Sunday morning and a backache Sunday night, but by work time Monday morning, you're feeling quite all right. Well, one of the children has a cold. Pneumonia, do you suppose? Why, the whole family had to stay home just to blow that poor kid's nose. Well, the preacher, he's too young, or maybe he's too old. The sermons, they're not hard enough, or maybe they're too bold. His voice is much too quiet-like. Sometimes he gets too loud. He needs to have more dignity, or else he's way too proud. Well, the sermons, they're too long, or maybe they're too short. He ought to preach the word with dignity instead of stomp and snort. Well, that preacher we've got must be the world's most stuck-up man. Well, one of the ladies told me the other day, well, he didn't even shake my hand. (laughs) Ah, the song really hits it. We do make an awful lot of excuses. These folks were making a lot of excuses for not listening to the gospel and causing the preachers here an awful lot of trouble. Let's go on to verse 3, and I'd like to see a, a third principle, and that is to advance the cause, advance the principle of discipleship. Now, we find this because it says in the verse, it says they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. I'd like to offer the thought here. When we have a discipleship opportunity, we ought to invest as long as we can. Luke doesn't say how long it was. We kind of take the evidence of where they were at and other circumstantial evidence from the book of Acts and conclude probably about six months' time. Where is he, remember? They are in the area called Galatia. So this letter, this epistle to the Galatians will be written to these individuals as well as to other cities. It'd be Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe would be the four cities we see on this missionary trip that are in the region of Galatia. So Paul stayed there as long as he could here in the city of Iconium. Six months pouring himself into these disciples. I find a second thing. That is, they demonstrated as much as they could. It's not enough just to tell people what to do. We need to model it as well, don't we? Now, what were they doing? Verse 3, it says, They were speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You might, you might notice the word it's translated for or upon, Speaking boldly, it's in the New American Standard, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. The reason they render it that way is the Greek word epi, which underlines this, almost always means upon, or upon the basis of. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means that their ministry was one that was clearly dependent upon the Lord. We get back to that central idea of a bold ministry. They were modeling demonstrating this is how Christian people have an impact in their community. They depend on the Lord. They speak boldly with reliance on the Lord. And you know, I think it caught on. I think these Iconian believers recognized this was the way to have effective ministry. The Lord authenticated them, attesting their witness with supernatural signs and wonders. I would say, no, the apostolic gifts are not ours today, But certainly apostolic power ought to be. Let's not be content, friends, with a ministry that is less than supernatural. Please don't forget that when you came to new life in Jesus Christ, that was supernatural. 
To be born of the Spirit is to be born from above. That's supernatural. To have victory over sin is supernatural. Don't be content with less than supernatural. Fourth thing I'd like you to observe is that we ought to accept the pattern of division, verses 4 and 5. The city was divided, we find. The people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And then verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled. So clearly, division will happen as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see people who become hostile to us. We see a world become hateful to us. And they may, in fact, try to take our lives. That actually happened here. You say, well, stoning. Who does stoning? Well, that would have been the Jews who would have been behind that. So we see they were instigators, but they wanted the government to to carry it out. And it's a pretty ugly alliance here, actually trying to murder these men who had come to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they could have eternal life. It's a sad and tragic thing. And what was the end result? Well, they had to run. Verses 6 and 7, you see them running away to Lystra and Derby. That means about 20 miles down the road to Lystra. As we've already noted, they are cities of a different region, which was within the larger region of Galatia, this area called Lycaonia, and the surrounding country. They didn't limit their ministry only to in this, being in the cities, but they went out into outlying areas as well and continued to preach the gospel. What should we remember about these, these, these verses here? I think a, a reasonable conclusion we could draw is that we ought to adopt the policy of determination. Sometimes God brings a ministry to a place to an end, and it's okay to move on when the Lord has indicated that. And these men were clear to follow the word of God and the leading of the Lord to another place. And there are other people that need to be reached as well. Let's not forget that sometimes those who are doing the Lord can be controversial. It seemed like everywhere Paul went, there was a riot that ensued, and sometimes a revival too. It's not one or the other, sometimes it's both. And let's not forget then that uh, this is also part of the work of the Lord. I close with this. You say, well, pastor, this, okay, these are biblical times. These are, Paul is definitely an apostle, and Barnabas seems to be, linked in with apostleship here as well. I'll deal with that next week. But should this be happening around here? Should it happen in America? And I would give you an example. Uh, Actually comes from our nation's history. Down in rural Georgia, about 100 miles from Savannah, a home still sits very well kept on a dirt road, and there is a fearsome history that's connected with it. It revolves around a certain Methodist preacher by the name of Lorenzo Doe. If you want to look up his name, it looks like Dow, D-O-W, but it's pronounced Doe. He died in 1834. Doe was not a calm, dignified preacher. In fact, his own description of himself was eccentric. He wrote a book about his ministry and dealings, and it was entitled The Eccentric Preacher. It was at one time the second best-selling book in the United States after the Bible. Believe it. Anyway, he would scream and holler things like, Whiskey is the devil's water! 
He'd cry at times. He'd challenge people about their beliefs. He'd call out the Catholics, especially the Jesuits. He'd warn people against God's judgment. He'd rail against slavery, even when he was preaching in the Deep South. You can imagine it wasn't real popular in some places that he went to. Oftentimes, these bold declarations got him ejected from towns. He'd get pelted with stones and eggs and rotten vegetables. In 1821, Lorenzo Doe entered the town of Jacksonboro, Georgia. It was a rough town. It was built up with lumberjacks who made their living by sending their logs down the river towards Savannah. And Doe had arrived in town at a very high time because the people were celebrating having newly become the county seat. But Doe went into local saloons. It was said that there were more saloons than houses in Jacksonboro, Georgia. And things were so rough that children would go out after Saturday nights and pick eyeballs up off of the streets that had been lost by people who were in brawls the night before. I don't know how true that is. Anyway, Doe was going into the saloons and pronouncing the judgment of God, as I've given you an example of the kinds of things he would say. And in one saloon, he got so bold as to get an iron tool and break open a whiskey keg and spill it out on the floor and declare God's judgment. Well, the locals had had enough. The men came and threw him bodily out of the saloon and then stood around him trying to figure out what they were going to do with this misfit Methodist preacher. And they decided they were going to string him up, make an example of him. Except for one man, his name was Seaborn Goodall. He was a well-respected man in the community. He said, no, don't do that. Don't do that. I'll take him. I'll take him and he can spend the night at my house and he'll be out of town the next morning. Well, they relented to the terms that Mr. Goodall had proposed. And so he brought the preacher to his home, listened to what he had to say, gave him a bed to sleep in, and next morning, uh, and it was a good thing he did because the crowd did show up at his house ready to carry out what they threatened to do if Lorenzo Doe didn't get out of town. Lorenzo Doe got on a horse, went to the edge of, the, of town, and from there turned around and announced... A curse upon the town of Jacksonboro, Georgia, that God was going to bring his wrath against this city. And then he pointed over towards Seaborn Goodall and he said, Except for this man and his house, because he showed kindness to me, to the servant of the Lord, and listened, but the rest of you didn't. And with that, he put his spurs to his horse and went out of town. And you say, Well, what happened? Well, A lot of people forgot about what the preacher had said, but it was within a short time after that, some fires started mysteriously consuming houses in Jacksonboro. People still don't know why, but one house and then another, not all at once, but homes started burning up. And then trade started falling. Their logging business started to suffer. And there were a series of violent storms. And within a few years, it was just as the preacher had predicted. The town of Jacksonboro had closed its doors. And if you look for evidence of it today, there's very little to find. Except there is a white, well-kept house 
near a dirt road. It's the home of Seaburn Goodall. It's the only thing that stands today as a testimony that there was one man who didn't spurn the message that the Lord had given. You say, well, I don't think that was a very good vehicle of a messenger. The Lord uses a lot of rough characters to preach the gospel sometimes. I'm one. But I want you to notice it's pretty important that we listen to the people that the Lord sends to us. Did it happen in Iconium? Yes, it did. Can it happen in small towns here today, in this city, this country, and others around the world? It can. Friends, we should listen when the gospel's preached, and we should make sure that we let God use us to boldly preach the gospel as well. We bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider the importance of being used of you to minister the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for examples of spirit-filled, empowered witnesses. And Lord, we'd ask that we would be those today. And this week, as we minister in our various places in life, Lord, would you strengthen and encourage us to be witnesses unto you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.